this is Dr. Alex Avila with Love University, and we're back. I'm an author, psychologist, and speaker. Every week we talk about how to love ourselves, others, and a higher nature, how to improve our career, finances, relationships, health, and spirituality. We have a very distinguished guest today, an esteemed guest. She's going to talk to us about very important and very, very serious issues. And um, this gentleman here is Dr. John Cobb. And by the way, he just turned, I believe, 97 years of age. Happy birthday, Dr. Cobb. And he's a theologian, a philosopher, environmentalist. Uh, he's a preeminent scholar in what they call process philosophy and theology, and the author of over 50 books. He's a former, actually a former professor, I guess, a current professor at, at Claremont College's 60 years there uh, in theology. He holds six honorary doctorates. He has been elected to the Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's a co-founder for Process Studies, a Center for Process Studies, with the launch of more than 30 related centers in academic institutions, including 23 in China. And he has recently launched his new project, Living Earth Movement. Welcome, Dr. Cobb, to the show. Cobb, before we get into it, you got so many theories. You know, I went a little crazy trying to research all the stuff that you have, which is really uh, very uh, profound. Uh, I want to ask you a question. You're just turned 97. How do you live a happy and long life? <laughs> um, I think the, the most important decision to make is who your parents will be. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's going to be fun to do that. <laughs> my, my mother made it to 102. Incredible. Wow. And my father died at 97. That's amazing. So genetics, you believe... But, you know, we hear a lot of uh, people that laugh a lot. You know, comedians often live late in life and sometimes p- people in the religious world, spiritual world. Uh, I know you were born in Kobe, Japan. Your parents were missionaries. Uh, you came to the U.S. I believe you lived in Georgia. I, I think I detected a southern accent there. And then um, you went to World War II. Uh, you said you lost your faith at some point and then you got it back. So tell us a little about your journey. And has any of that helped you live a long life, do you think, having faith or the, all these things oh. you're doing? <laughs> Well, I think another contribution to a long life is to have a happy family. And a happy family doesn't mean a family with no problems. Okay. <laughs> okay. But, but nevertheless, I've, I've never had any anxieties that my wife would be unfaithful to me or that mm-hmm. she would leave me. And uh, it's, mm-hmm. it, I think that makes a difference. And I have had... I've had... Wonderful students that have always enjoyed my teaching very much. Yes. I think that all those things help. So I'm a very fortunate person. Yes. Uh, just to describe my good fortune, I'll mention that I have seven great grandchildren. Wow. And they all live within an hour's drive. That, that's incredible, especially in our commuter society. That's yeah. uh, cool. Uh, so where do you live? Are you in uh, California now, or are you in some I other? I live in Claremont, California. Oh, wow, you're very close to us. In, in Claremont, there are a number of retirement communities. I yes. live in the one that's called Pilgrim okay. Place. I see. Have you heard of uh, Mihaly that did uh, positive uh, flow work, psychology? He's a positive psychologist. I think he was on, at uh, Claremont for a while. Oh, Dr. Mihaly. Well, the name sounded faintly familiar, but yes. I wasn't going to say because uh, I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, uh, so, you know, research does show that marital stability, a happy marriage can increase longevity. And like you said, family and, you know, supporting those kind of things. Now, in terms of your um, your theories, you got a, a lot of interesting theories and, and work you've done. Religious pluralism 
I look at it as kind of um, complementary uh, uh, religions, uh, transformational, I think is what you call it, uh, where you can get insight into your religion by looking at other religions. For example, maybe Buddhism, you can meditate. Uh, if you're a Christian, you can meditate to Christ or to God, you know, the God that you believe in. But you can look at other other religions as well, kind of in, almost like an integration, but at least adapting things. And you have what you call process theology, which is kind of like becoming or changing, uh, which is a, a transformational, uh, where the universe changes uh, by actors of free will. So tell us a little bit about that uh, to our lay audience here. Well, I, in, in my view, to be a Christian today is to be open to all truth wherever it may be found and open to all good practices. That doesn't mean you can practice everything. Yes. And uh, it just means that the idea that to be faithful to Jesus means that you close your, your mind to what other people have said to me, that's idolatry rather than faith. Mm-hmm. Now, you uh, are you a were you a minister, a pastor? Do you have any official titles? In your yes, time? yes, I, I was ordained. Okay, so you're, uh, I guess, a minister. They call you. I, I'm. I have only my experience as a pastor is very limited, mm-hmm. but I do have some. I see. Now, the interesting I thing can, about... I'm bragging, I can say I served seven churches, but that was all at one time. Okay, well, that's pretty good. That seven was a, seven is a lucky number, by the way, I think. That was a half-time <laughs> job. <laughs> okay, I see. Now, process theology is pretty interesting. Now, some of it seems kind of non-traditional. Now, from the stuff I was reading and looking at your some of your past work, you say things like, um, uh, God is not omnipotent because God is a persuader and not a coercer. So in other words, humans have free will, and God kind of guides us. Uh, so tell us about that part. That God is not necessarily omnipotent in the sense that he, he forces you to do things. Well, I think that the doctrine of omnipotence is one of the greatest mistakes the church mm. ever made. Mm. It is not in the Bible. Mm. The, um, people think it's in the Bible because mm. in the Latin translation of a Hebrew name, the term, the, no way. The, the the word used was almighty. Yes. But there's no, no reason. I've, I've asked Jewish rabbis about it. They said, well, the, the name suggests uh, mountains. It's like the Grand Tetons. Mm-hmm. And why they, why to the tits should be turned into omnipotence. I don't, I think, I, I mean, I, I know something about why in yes. the fifth century or whatever it was that happened. Right, right. But nobody believes it. And I think to have doctrines that nobody believes is a mm. very unhealthy situation. Well, I mean, some people look at God as a parental figure that can protect them and take care of them. And there's maybe a little of that omnipotence idea. But you're saying is more of um, a guide or a loving you know, protector? How, how do you visualize God in this way? Well, I, I think that the uh, Jewish tradition and Jesus, even more emphatically than most Jews, thought of God very much as a parental figure. Hmm. Uh, the term Abba, which is the way Jesus addressed, and that just the, the closest approximation we have to that is Papa. Hmm. Okay. And that's an intimate, it's a, a term of intimacy, not, not yes. a term 
But it's respect, of course, and yes. it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that you don't love your papa. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it does say in Proverbs to fear the Lord, but fear is not necessarily like fright, is it? Uh, how do you translate yeah, the word I, fear in Proverbs? I really think that the word fear for a long time, even in the English language, didn't have the connotation of being scared. Ah. It, it had the connotation of mm. Great respect. Yes, respect. I see. And then we still have free will as humans. You're saying, I guess, to screw up if you need to, I mean, if you do it or, you know, to do well. And God is there as a guide. Now, the other thing, uh, Dr. Cobb, is interesting about this um, process theology is that there's a statement that God is changing uh, based on interaction with, with humans and also feeling. There's an emotional component. Yes. And you mentioned uh, Jesus as a fellow suffer, sufferer who can understand. So someone who's very compassionate, empathetic. So the God is sense feeling. And when we're in the old Testament, God appears to be sometimes a jealous, jilted lover in some way when, you know, the Jewish people went to idols. So there's great pain expressed. And uh, also we know in the Kabbalah uh, religion, uh, uh, mysticism, they talk about the fact that, you know, our, our actions on earth can affect the divine. And there's an interrelationship inter there. So tell us about that part of it, because that's something people may not think about. You always think God is just the way it is always, but you're saying it can transform. Well, I, I think that uh, if God was, did not change, there'd be no point in praying to God. Would there? I mean, it's common sense. And what's, it's what the vast majority of people believe until they get asked, that then they remember that they were told God was immutable. Well, again, that has nothing to do with the biblical God. This is the God created in the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. I think you said anthropomorphic. Uh, is that attributing human qualities to something? Is that the term? Yes. And uh, I, I think there's no question but that uh, the Bible has thinks of God in, in anthropomorphic terms. Of course, uh, anybody who uses anthropomorphic language and so mm -hmm. forth. If asked, does that mean God is just a great big human being? Mm -hmm. No one would say so. Okay. But I think I I think the anthrop anthropomorphism is a good place to start. And then of course absolutely. but of course in the in God's case it's this and this. In our case it's this and this. Mm -hmm. There's a relationship between the creator and the created. Yes. So do you believe that, uh, and we'll get to, into this later about ecological issues, but do you believe that God is looking out down on us and if we're not doing well with ecology, that God is upset? Can God get mad? Does God get happy? Uh, well, uh, strictly speaking, I think that God feels all of our feelings with us. Mm -hmm. So it's God has perfect empathy. Now, if if... If he's empathizing with human anger, he would feel it, but he would feel it as human anger. Hmm. I see. Well, human anger, some people are angry that others are not taking care of the environment and some people don't care. So is God empathizing with those who are angry or upset about it in this case? I, I think God would be empathetic with everyone, whatever, hmm. whatever they're feeling. And I'm quite sure that God's aim is to have as much value 
in the universe as possible. And this planet has made possible yes. vast advances over the other planets in this. We don't know when we talk about the universe as a whole how many habitable planets there are. Yes. But I think God has worked to create enormous richness, both yes. in the variety and in the intensity of feeling. And um, I'm, I don't think that God likes our reducing that, and destroying that. Uh, well, if we created a be beautiful thing, you want to keep it beautiful, I would imagine. Beauty is a very, very important part of it. Yes. Speaking of that, I think here's another, at least non traditional, that may surprise some people idea that you say that. Uh, Morality is not subservient to aesthetics. Uh, the, I guess the idea that you have to be good, if not, you go to hell, and so forth. And you're saying it's more of an evolution of, of, of being um, beautiful in the, in the spiritual sense, I imagine. A uh, higher, you know, kinder person, more compassionate. How do you see that part? Of the well, I, I think that the world is basically constituted of feeling. And and of course, feeling doesn't exclude thinking. <laughs> but uh, I, the the Bible talks very extensively about love. Yes, God loves us, right. and uh, the the fundamental commandment to us is to love God and our neighbor with all your heart and soul. And that's that's all feeling. So that uh, yes. it seems to me the Bible is about feeling to a large extent. Yes. So when you say the word aesthetics, you mean beautiful feeling, you know, these higher, you know, love feelings. Yes. But as opposed to being afraid that if I mess up, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hell or or that kind of, or if I do good, I'm going to heaven. So you don't believe in those absolutes necessarily, you're saying? I I, I think that love is very, wait, wait, what should I say? If God loves us, God is not going to cause us to be worse off after we die in any way that is dependent upon God. Yes. Who we become already in this life, there are people who become extremely miserable. Mm. And I don't think that when they die, even if they mm. say, oh, I believe in the Trinity and so forth, that suddenly their actual reality is going to be dramatically mm. Changed in a positive way. Yeah. I wrote a book, uh, Invincible You, on positive psychology. And I said that your heaven or hell begins here on earth. And that may be carried on, you know, this energy to wherever, you know, the higher place, right. the, 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 the energy. Uh, so we have a kind of alignment here of ideas. It's kind of interesting. Good. Good. Uh, now, you also, in one of your earlier um, appearances, you were talking about different ways to look at religion, I guess, or spirituality. What is the exclusive or absolutes, which is, you know, mine is the best. And if you don't have it, you have no salvation. And then we have uh, a one extreme. The other extreme is every religion is the same. We're all, you know, we're all good, which doesn't really account for differences. And they said yours is more of a transformational. We realize there are differences, but then, you know, they can collaborate, work together in some ways. You, know, you can draw elements from them. So tell us about the transformational approach uh, to looking at religion. I, I think if, if you begin by recognizing that, even within Christianity, there's lots of diversity. And of course, some of it is just better and worse. And I, I don't think we should withdraw judgments altogether. 
But I think that different traditions within Christianity have made great different contributions. And diversity is something to be celebrated. Yes. And uh, diversity with other religious traditions that have profoundly different orientations is even more enriching. And I, I personally find that being a disciple of Jesus calls for one to speak the truth, to listen to truth, to obey, to, to believe what, what makes sense to believe and constantly develop it in light of all that other people say, whether the other people are scientists or people of other faiths or, or just people who have wonderful common sense. Uh, common sense, I frankly think science has lost touch with common sense too much. And uh, I have more confidence in... I mean, uh, the, the business about um, determinism, that's not common sense. Nobody believes it. Dr. Kaba, I really like your your analysis of religions. I, I believe you studied uh, Buddhism. You work with people in the yes. Buddhist uh, tradition, which is a very beautiful religion. But you said there are differences. There maybe some similar with Christianity. Uh, the difference you're saying Buddhism looks within and also focuses on the moment. They're not really that future or past oriented. Whereas Christianity, they look to the future, you know, to the future kingdom, for example. Also, they look at history. And also external things, for example, justice in society and uh, compassion in society, which some Buddhists may do that as well. <clears throat> and then you're saying that Jesus actually uh, helped uh, stop the Jews from being massacred by Romans. So there was actually a real practical purpose at the time uh, through peace and love. So nonviolence, for example, uh, which is, you know, the Gandhi's approach as well. Martin Luther King. Uh, I think so it's quite important to say the most effective disciple of Jesus was the Hindu. Yes. Interesting. The, the Hindi, in terms of, you mean that approach, you're saying? Well, I mean, people, people think it's so, some, some Christians think it's so important to be a Christian. Right. I think that it's very, we can all learn immensely from Jesus. I, I frankly think the salvation of the world depends upon our learning from Jesus. So I, this is not a minor, a minor point. But yes. being a Christian, if that means believing certain creeds and belonging to particular institutions, that that may or may not be important. Okay. I think it's more Gandhi's following Jesus was more important than a great many people. Mm -hmm. believe all kinds of orthodox things. I see. I think you said you're a follower of Jesus and not necessarily a Christian, Christian in, the, in the traditional sense. My, my, because I know so many people who think if you are not a good Trinitarian, that you're not a Christian. And uh, that makes means that Jesus and Paul are not good Christians. The Bible is not a good, not a Christian book. So I think I have plenty of good company. Uh, the creeds are formulated in what we call substance categories. We're using this, uh, this is philosophical. 
and uh, Parsis thought rejects substances. And so I can't possibly be a Trinitarian if that means uh, adhering to beliefs that depend upon the notion of substance. Hmm. So Trinitarian, you mean the, the God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, the, the, three, the three parts of God? Uh, strictly speaking, it should be God, Christ, rather than Jesus, because Jesus is, um, in, in these orthodox formulations, Jesus is both human and divine. Mm-hmm. And the, the human is not part of the Trinity. Personally, the, the, this is not what I think is important. But <laughs> I see. But I think uh, what you're saying is that we can draw in some ways from other religions or paths to enhance our own spirituality. Yeah. Uh, some things that are very, uh, very beautiful. And um, the idea of Buddhism, you've heard the phrase, beware the second arrow. Uh, the first arrow is whatever happens to you. Let's say you're late for an appointment. And then the second arrow is your emotional reaction to it, which can make it worse. And that can cause more pain. Yes. So, you know, in cognitive psychology, we talk about irrational thoughts, changing your thoughts and changing your feelings and behaviors. So I think that's a very powerful concept. Beware the second thought uh, that comes, you know, to per- perceive the negativity to it. But I think with Christianity, the second thought could be love, right? Or maybe it could be compassion. Uh, someone cuts you off on the road. Some people, the second thought is, oh, that, you know, such and such, you know, and they get very angry. Or they can say maybe compassionately they're uh, late to um, a funeral or maybe they have to go to the hospital and pick someone up. Which changes your mindset, right? Because now you bring empathy and compassion into the, the equation and you are, you know, you're more peaceful, right? you're more accepting. Um, have you ever found that to be the case in your walk? Well, I, I think that um, the philosophy, uh, follow is very much like the philosophy of Buddhism. And um, I think that the Bible is much more oriented to stories and history than it is to ontological substances. I think once you think of God in terms of substance, you you make him make God fundamentally non-relational, whereas the biblical God is very relational. When you say relational, you mean in a personal, like level where you can understand yes, a person. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, if we if we feel that God is within us at all times and is participating in constituting our being. See, I, I think God is incarnate in everything. Very powerful. I like that. I think these are very powerful uh, concepts here. And I think we need that today in our society. You know, people are lonely. You know, some people staying home a lot. You know, they're afraid, you know, the virus and health yes. issues and yeah. economic issues. So, um, you know, finding that love, you know, and Love University, we talk a lot about loving yourself, others, and the higher nature. Yeah. So, it's a, you know, it's a three-part model that we're looking at. And then uh, in your newest work, or obviously you've done this for many years, but now you expanded it with the environmental issues. And you have all interesting terms. You talk about environmental ethics, ecological civilization, uh, earthism, and then your new movement, you have a new website, Living Earth Movement. And you talk about the preservation and restoration of the earth and its inhabitants uh, as being more important than the same making money. There's, you know, some businesses, you know, this is what they want to do. Yeah. Uh, and we know Native Americans, you know, the, uh, have this belief that even inanimate objects have a spirit 
that we should uh, revere. Yes. So it's a, kind of interesting. And of course, with global warming and all these things that are going on, uh, dangers of climate, biodiversity, and the term environmental degradation that's going on. Tell us about that. How did all this come and play? Did you begin this in the 60s and 70s, or is it something new for you? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think that I always felt that God was in, in, in nature as well as in, in human beings. So that wasn't new, but until 1969, um, excuse me, 1959, which I'm, which I'm trying to say, uh, we, I, I had not thought of this as theologically important. Hmm. So it hit me hard that, uh, that we, to realize that our anthropocentrism was not simply saying that God loves human beings in a very special way, but it was implying that other things exist only for our sake. And it never occurred to me that my dog existed only for my sake. I thought I existed partly for the dog's sake. Interesting. So, uh, but I, but I hadn't ever thought of articulating that theologically. So. Yes, I see. Now we're joined here by one of our listeners, uh, Mr. Daniel. Daniel, could you turn your camera on for us and say hello? Hello. Hi. Daniel's an environmentalist, and uh, he's going to ask a, couple, a question of you in a little bit, if, if that's okay with you, Dr. Cobb. Uh, he's very eager to, to uh, learn more about what you're doing. Now, one thing. Um, I noticed that you and your son created a new index. Uh, you call it the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare. Yes. We have the you know the GDP or the GNP gross national product, which is you know based on economics. We're also calculating the effects that these um, new businesses can have on the environment too. That can maybe even hurt it. And there's a cost and benefit. So what's going on with that? Uh, why is this a new measure that that can help people? Well, uh, I think that the GDP is, is about the most stupid way of measuring progress that one could get. Mm. It, it simply measures the increase of market activity. Right. And uh, if a city burns down, that doesn't subtract from the GDP. But all the money that you spend re rebuilding the city, that adds. So after the city burns down and the GDP is wonderful, but does that mean we we are better off? It's it's a hard stretch to justify, I think. Yes. But there are many other features, which even in standard economic journals are critiqued or limit, limitations are pointed out. So we did not introduce into the genuine, it has, it is now called the Genuine Progress Indicator, so GPI. Okay. Uh, but ISCW is what we called it originally. <laughs> uh, we didn't introduce anything into that that could not be justified from existing literature as being a more accurate indication of actual improvement. And, uh, I sent it to four mainstream economists, not, not minor figures, and asked them, I paid them to critique it. Mm. And the only criticism that I got was that uh, we did not 
have a figure for the positive value of leisure. Oh, interesting. And uh, that would have, of course, made it even more different. <laughs> so, so, so economists don't have good reasons for not using it. Mm. They just, frankly, they're too bound up with the mm. capitalist system. I see. And the capitalist system would be modified mm. significantly yes. if you paid attention to mm. the costs. That makes sense. You know, in some uh, societies, they used to have the siesta, you may have heard about, where everything shuts down and people sleep and relax and they come back to work. Uh, and they're more productive, actually, and maybe more content in a sense. Yeah. So leisure, I think, is a big issue. In our society, you know, Western society, you know, the U.S., everyone's rushing, right? And yeah. I think the yeah. problem is now with the Internet, I mean, now with um, the virus, people staying home, they're working even more than they used to work because it's uh, 24-7. Does that sound right for you, Mr. Daniel? I, yeah. <laughs> okay. I think this guy's always working, <laughs> uh, which is good and bad. I mean, people, if you love your work, it's good. But I mean, you never have a mental break. You know, the, the monkey mind. You've heard that term, uh, Dr. Cobb, in the, in the Eastern philosophy. You know, the chattering mind. We're always thinking of everything. And uh, now going back to the economic, the um, ecological aspect of things, you also tie it into the spiritual aspect, even the religious aspect. We see that Noah. He didn't just save the humans. He saved animals too, right? So he put the animals on, on the ark. Uh, and then um, we had the year of the Sabbath and the Jubilee, where the land rests for a period of time, right? No, no plowing is done, kind of give nature a chance to recuperate. And then um, the famous parable is that with Jesus, yeah, the, the rich young man, he said, um, sell everything and follow me. And the rich young man was sad. He, he left. And Jesus says, it is easier to, uh, for as a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom. And then people surprised, how is that possible? The rich people should be able to get there. He says, with uh, man is not possible, with God it is possible. Now, I want to ask you, because you're doing theology a lot. Now, some people say that means that money is bad and root of all evil. And some people say that uh, you need to depend on God to get to the kingdom and not just rely on riches. So what is your take on that, that parable? I well, I, I, I think Jesus is very explicit, probably the most uh, emphatic statement about almost any issue that he made was you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon is basically money. That doesn't mean money is bad. It means that it is not what, it is not the judge of whether things are good or bad. Money can be used for good purposes. Money can be used for bad purposes. It is instrumental, but we have actually turned into, I mean, the, the theology of the United States today is taught in the departments of economics, and it's a very bad theology. Hmm. Yeah, the, the idea it's, that... Um, it's destroying the world. Right. I think you saw the e e e economism, or the term you use. Yes. Uh, economy, <clears throat> yeah, the, the money-making is the, the number one goal. <clears throat> Now, one thing you've done is very fascinating. You've worked a lot with China. And yeah. uh, over the years, you founded in 2005 the Institute for Postmodern Development of China, dealing with, um, I guess, working east and west, uh, ecological, you know, saving the, the ecology. And you wrote a letter on October 21st uh, last year to President Biden and President of China, uh, Xi Jinping, if I pronounced that correctly. And you're talking about you want them to work together and cooperate. Uh, for the uh, ecology, for the environment, things like that. And you, first of all, you thank China. You said that um, 
basically there've been a lot of improvements over there. They're working for an ecological society. You say that um, the governors in the rural er the areas are actually uh, promoting ecological growth versus economic growth in some ways. Not, not versus in the case of China. Not versus, but they're, they're doing both. <laughs> both are at the both same time. Yeah. And then also you're saying that uh, they've reduced population, they reduced poverty, uh, more people are moving back into the rural areas as well. And China is ready to help uh, the world in this way. And then um, also cutting back on coal. So these are all good things. And you say, hey, let's be friends. However, you know, there's animosity, unfortunately, toward China. And some people, because of either the blaming for the virus or trade issues. Uh, and Daniel, you had a question on this. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, obviously we know that uh, anybody who's, who's got their head in books and news and things that, you know, China is, is intrinsically entwined with the U.S. in terms of trade relations and things like that. Um, but for a more common perspective, for somebody who kind of just takes rhetoric for what it is, how would you say we could get someone to uh, be in support of a China-U.S. Uh, partnership um, in the same way we had in, in World War II era, where we had common interests and allyship, not necessarily uh, you know, a lockstep agenda, but there was at least a common enemy formation that we uh, uh, combated against. And Dr. Cobb was in World War II, right, Dr. Cobb? You... Um in the photo there. So what do you think of Daniel's question? What, what do I think of what? Oh, oh I see his question. Can you, uh, oh, oh, his what, question. What well, I, I will try to say, I, I think it is possible for two people to cooperate, even if they don't like each other. Hmm. Like a husband and wife, maybe? Or I, I think it's a lot better if they like each other. So I'm not trying to put down liking. And I think that the Chinese are likable people, and I think Americans are likable people. I don't think there's any any problem. We don't have to agree about everything mm -hmm. in order to agree that saving the world from self-destruction is important. Now, there are lots of people who would, you know, nod their heads, oh, yes, of course, saving the world is important. But then they go right on living in a way that is destroying the world. Hmm. Uh, but if we really think saving the world is important, it surely is more important than any of the issues between the U.S. and China. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, I think that the Chinese government, if properly approached, would be quite cooperative. And the remarkable thing, whether our letter had anything to do with it or not, but there is a committee, and John Kerry is the leader of the American side, um, that is meeting with the goal of giving leadership in the world. And if, if they really will do this, but I'm not... I'm not optimistic because the American people have are being told every day that China is villainous. Everything China does is demonized. We do this with our enemies. The people who follow Trump do this with respect to the people who are against Trump. And the people who are against Trump do this with respect to, to Trump. Mm -hmm. So we, we are exposed to the proposition, the propaganda of enmity all the time mm -hmm. in this in this country. I see. And I would like very much 
both in relationship to China and in relationship to the Trumpites and the anti-Trumpites, if if we would stop doing it. I mean, you some of the some of the things that are said about bad things about China are true. Some of the bad things about Biden are true. Some of the bad things about Trump are true. But that doesn't mean you have to talk only about the bad things. In fact, I think we generally get along better in human society if we emphasize the positive rather than emphasizing the negative. That's a good point. So you're, so you're building a, a, a bridge of friendship, that is your, your aim. And also talk to people. Maybe this, this podcast can help people understand, right? That you can, like you said, work together, even if you're not 100%, you know, on the same thing. But on certain areas, you can work together. That's right. And I, I think we could work together with China on, on a lot of things. Uh, I, I don't know that there's anybody I completely agree with, but I have a lot of friends I work with. True. And I can... I'm a I'm not a a friend of President Xi, and I'm not mm-hmm. a friend of President Biden. I haven't met either one of them. Okay. I, I consider friendship has to have some actual content. Okay. Right. But um, have they responded to the letters or not yet? No, I'll never get a response. But the oh. remarkable thing is that I I call for three things and they all happened. And uh, the first one was that Biden made the statement. You see, you see he was, Biden had said, uh, please help us. We want help on global climate. Yes. But at the same time, 10 times as often as he would ask for some cooperation, he said, China is our number one enemy. <laughs> oh, oh, is that? Okay. If you keep saying China is number one enemy and you're the most powerful nation in the world and you have enough bombs to wipe out the entire population of China several times over, you you make Chinese a little nervous. I sure am. So it's kind of a give and take. It's like you're saying good things, but you're saying bad things. That's right. So, so Biden did make a public statement that we should be saying China is our number one competitor. Hmm. Now, whether my my urging him to do so had anything to do with it, I don't know. But <laughs> okay. Who knows? Maybe maybe he read it uh, some night, you know. And, and uh, then I, I said to the uh, president, she, that it, any, any gesture that Biden makes in a friendly way will be costly to him politically. Hmm. So hmm. please keep that in mind. And even if he doesn't do much, hmm. jump at the positive element. I see. Now, don't you know the <laughs> vice president of China? I think I said somewhere. I, I, I do. I, I know the man who presides, who yeah. is the regular presider in the Ch- Chinese parliament. Okay. I do consider him a friend. So you have some uh, relationship there. Okay. And, and he is, uh, he, many people think of him as the vice president of China. Yeah. That's great. So you found them to be uh, good people, uh, warm people, yeah. uh, Chinese? And he incidentally is not a communist. Oh, okay. There are four parties in the parliament. Oh, really? I, I, I think if, if you just examine the details, China is not quite the same thing as people describe. You know? 
There's no question the Communist Party is the center of power in China. I'm not, I I don't want to say, but but, uh, the, the governors of the states and have some power and, and the politically the elected parliament, a lot of things are left to the elected people. But they they cannot take steps that would that would antagonize or be contrary to so so it, it it's one sided. I'm I'm definitely not a democracy, it doesn't pretend to be. But Right. Well, Dr. But the, the people of China have more confidence in their government than the oh. people of the United States have in our government. Oh, okay. And so you can't just say it's a failure in, th- in yeah. terms of serving the, the people. Right. Well, Dr. Cobb, you, you have such a broad base of knowledge. I'm, I'm very amazed today. You're talking about politics, philosophy, spirituality, psychology, science. And um, Mr. Um, Daniel here, I had a follow-up question. Yeah, I'll give you this a, a small background, then he can fill in. Uh, he has come a similar background to you. His uh, his father was um, a minister. Uh, I think he grew up in fairly traditional, maybe um, fundamentalist kind of uh, background, and he actually lost a, lost his faith. And I think he still lost it. Tell us a little bit about that, Daniel, in, in your question. Uh, sure. So my uh, my father is a Lutheran minister. Uh, we, he started out in New Jersey, a small small church in South Jersey, you know, Moodor, Pennsylvania, started a family. And uh, here we are now. Um, I had come to the realization in my teen years that I was not really a religious person anymore and had that talk with my, with my father in years after that point, probably around college years, um, where I realized I was not really a religious or spiritual person in the same sense he is uh, with his life work as a, as a pastor. Um, but of course, now uh, in my work in psychological work and therapy and things, a lot of clients will default to religion and things. So it's definitely relevant to me for uh, a lot of ways for, um, you know, uh, self-soothing and purpose and, and hope and things like that. Um, and there's also some people as well who find themselves lacking faith and wanting it back. Um, so they, they find themselves in moments of des- desperation and they find church, certainly but they may not have a rebuilding of that faith that happens back to them. So my question to you then is, is as somebody who had went one way and then back in your life, um, what was the process of restoring your faith? And also, well, can, can you help Daniel restore his faith? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not possible. <laughs> People yes. try. They do try. They try to convert him, but he doesn't want to do it. But is that, he can't be forced, right? <laughs> Uh, obviously, we're not going to do that now. But I would say that that examine all of the prejudices of society, mm. and and that would include all kinds of beliefs about God. Mm. That so many people worship an idol and call it God, mm-hmm. and um, I I believe that. If you look at the the reasons that our culture has turned away from God, so that to believe in God is now countercultural, hmm. uh, there, there are good reasons because many of the beliefs that their people are rejecting should be rejected. Okay, but if if you ask, is there evidence 
for the being a cosmic spirit that loves. There is evidence. Scientists have found evidence. Scientists have found so much evidence that they have invented the idea that there must be thousands of cos cosmoses or universes. It's, it's not a very clearly statable view. The universe is everything there is. How can there be multiple everythings there are? I'm, but anyway, I'm, the, the, the fact that they have found it necessary in order to avoid affirming God to invent thousands of things for which there is no evidence whatsoever should at least say that they don't have any real reason not to believe in God. And I'm hoping that people will just stop being prejudiced and start asking, what's the evidence? So keep an open mind is what you're saying. Uh, neither deny or accept without... There is so much dogmatism, and there's much more dogmatism in the university than there is in the church. Mm -hmm. Right. And then uh, you talk about pluralistic, I mean, religion looking at all different elements of different paths, right? Different faiths. That, that's right. And, and, uh, and I, I think that Christianity has an advantage, that the historical approach enables one, in fact, it requires one to be constantly readjusting. If you think in terms of what is it that needs to be done now, and that's different from what needed to be done 20 years ago, what what can you believe now? Well, you, the the discovery of the fine tuning of the universe is something that took place what thirty forty years ago. Prior to that, one could argue that the evidence was against God. I don't think that the, that there really was evidence against God, but it's much was much harder to say that that science provides evidence for God. But Dr. Cobb, what if Daniel says, I still am an atheist, I think, yeah. or whatever, you know, agnostic or whatever, yeah. but can he still do good without being a Christian? Uh, did you, you were, you were going to say that, Daniel, something like that? Yeah, I was, I was wondering uh, if you, if you give any sort of levity towards the postmodern idea that uh, faith is not required for good deeds or good acts. Yeah. Well, um, some, some kind of belief system is required. Mm. If you try not to believe anything, <laughs> you don't know whether you have any responsibility or not. You don't know whether you, have, whether you should be concerned about your neighbor or not. I mean, if you, know, if you really, really become an agnostic about everything, mm. I, I don't think that anything very positive results. But a lot of people hold on to all kinds of features of Christianity when they give up God. The tendency, if they don't, if they don't really work at the job of thinking about it and figuring what, what the world is really like, is that it fades. So that as as it has been become the standard. I mean, the university as such is an atheist organization. Mm. And as more people are educated in an atheist organization, 
the um, I think the, the the level of concern for others has declined in the United States. So you think there's more of a selfishness? Like, what if uh, yes. people say, "I don't care about the environment. I don't care about. I just want to make a lot of money." That's what. Right. What do you say to people like that? Well, say they, you know, I don't blame you for that. That's why you were told to go to college. <laughs> the whole society encourages you to think that making money is the most important thing. But if think about it a little while, is it more important to make money than it is to leave a world to your children that they can inhabit? Do you really believe that? I mean, I, if people were really asked what they really believe, yes. that we'd be much better off. Yes. But for a long time, it was the church that was mainly guilty of getting people to say they believe things that they didn't believe. I see. But now it's a university that does that. And I think Doctor, you were in the university for 60 years. Can you say that about your own university? Yeah. Well, I have been greatly helped by the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead. And um, Whitehead's philosophy is so much deeper and more profound. It provides so much better understanding of the nature of science and what's, why science is so important, but what it can and cannot do, that the only way the university has been able to deal with it is to exclude it. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't exclude it by refutation, just excludes it by dogmatics. Hmm. Yeah. Dr. Cobb, you're quite an interesting figure. You have so much knowledge and wisdom. Daniel, what did you think of Dr. Cobb's answers? <laughs> um, I thought it was enlightening. Uh, I thought uh, he gave me some some practical answers I can I can use for with my talk to other people. Certainly, hmm. um, you haven't converted me yet, but it's all right. <laughs> uh, maybe one day I'll come around. Right? We'll see. <laughs> one day you might uh, you know join Dr. Cobb in China or something, right? Who knows? Uh, maybe after you've had right? after for twenty years, people have been telling you one thing, but mm-hmm. just just hearing an opposite statement. It's not going to convince you. Not, not enough here. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but, but we'll see. But anyways, uh, Dr. Cobb, can Daniel come to your birthday party? He's going to have a 97th uh, is it Zoom birthday party. It's coming up. Dr. Cobb? I had, no, that was on, on Tuesday went morning. I oh, you had, had it already? Oh. Yes. Um, okay. The, the Cobb Institute has a meeting every Tuesday morning at 10 oh, okay. And they did all kinds of things that should have waited for my Hundreds birthday. Oh wow! Well, either way, it's good. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was too much. But but then on my actual birthday, which was the next day in the yes. evening, right? Uh, there was a celebration in China. Wow! In, wow! It's cool. And uh, China is where I really have a following. Wow! You have a lot for China, uh, and they have a lot for you too. That's fine. Yes. Yeah. Well, Daniel, thanks for joining us. To, uh, let you go. Uh, thanks for uh, dropping by. Your, one of our great listeners, uh, Daniel. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. Have a wonderful day. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Cobb, you know, uh, I'm thinking about this stuff about spirituality, and, and people have said that love is a universal, either religion or spirituality. It's the, the fundamental core, and we look at uh, agape. Unconditional love through the Christian religion, karuna, compassion, yes, uh, through Buddhism and uh, bhakti, devotion, through the Hinduism, and even Islam. They say that God loves us so much that He put attributes of love in us. Yes, so these are all amazing things. And do you believe that love can be considered one of the highest forms 
of spirituality. Yes. Yes, you do. Yes, I, I, I am more interested in people loving other people than in people engaging in what is usually called spiritual exercises. Ah. But spiritual exercises can lead to overcoming the obstacles to love. In yes. Case that's and I was going to ask you, do you have any spiritual exercises? Do you, personally, do you pray, meditate? Do you, what do you do that you can tell our listeners and, and audience? Yeah. No. Uh, I, I, I'm not myself a, a, a one who has engaged in spiritual exercise. I, of course, I pray. Yes. But I don't do it in that kind of hmm. sustained way. I, I hmm. try to be open to God and to to really let go and let God. It's pretty powerful. And so that's a kind of spiritual exercise, but it's... Yes. Yeah, but open it, to God. I, I think God is in me. I think God is calling me in every moment to do what is appropriate to do in that moment. I think God's wisdom is much greater than mine. Yeah, we had Neil Donald Walsh on the show. You know, for the conversation with God, he wrote a, a bunch of bestsellers. Uh, he said he's constantly talking to God. The question is whether you're listening or God talks to us. Uh, yes. And uh, that's important. Uh, are you going to heaven, Dr. Cobb? Well, uh, I I think that the again it's a matter of evidence, isn't it? And I think the evidence is that that death does not end it all. There are just too many people who have connected, reconnected with people who have died, and then too many people who after being dead for a few minutes come back to life. Yes. I think the evidence is strong. The word heaven is probably gets more in the way. Mm. But I was with my uncle when he died. And I was just deeply moved that the last thing he said, oh, so beautiful. Mm. Wow. So I, I have absolutely no fear. Uh, I was going to ask you about that because a lot of people do have fear of death. I'm I'm, I'm ready to go anytime. Wow! I have. Uh, I I really would be more more ready to go if if I were not having so many opportunities. There are more people interested in what I have to say yes. in the last two years than there wow. were the rest of my life. That's amazing. Uh, that's that's kind of an amazing story. Because I've been talking about how bad the situation was and how wrong we were to keep doing the things that were leading to um, self-destruction, and most people have not been interested in hearing it. Mm. But now mm. now people are recognizing that it really is true. Yes. Because you wrote the book, Is It Too Late? Uh, yes. What, in 70, right? So, so you're kind of prophetically looking at uh, now, and, and now is, is the time. And uh, I think in that, in all those respects, I'm, I'm more biblical than the fundamentalists. Oh, wow. Okay. But that doesn't mean that I think the Bible is an inerrant and infallible book. I think that's idolatry rather than. Hmm. But, I see. but the, the prophetic principle is extremely important. Yes. The historical orientation is extremely important. Jesus' teaching 
that we should love even our enemies is mm. extremely important. Mm. And, and the yeah. teaching that we should not worship money is extremely mm. important. And yeah. now those are not the only things I, I think are extremely important, mm. but, uh, but, but they are so badly needed in, in our world today. That so if you read it I, just I for the... I don't know how the world can be saved without Jesus, so I... It's powerful, yeah. I mean, if you read it for the powerful message, you know, the, the like I said, the principles, uh, that's by itself is, is life changing, right? The, the Bible, I'm saying, as opposed to the, um, I mean, some people like the stories and things like that. And but you say, you know, the messages are powerful, the, you know, the, the profound ideas. And uh, they say in some cultures, uh, they mourn when someone is born because they say you're forcing an infinite soul into a finite body, but they celebrate when, they, when they're liberated. But as long as you, Complete your mission in life, right? Your purpose on earth. And I think um, I like the idea of leaving a, a lasting legacy of goodness and love. And Dr. Cobb, I believe you're doing that. You're, the, you're leaving a lasting legacy of love and goodness. That's very beautiful. And I uh, really enjoyed having you on today. I'm glad you took the time. And um, I believe um, that you have a website. Is it Last Living Earth Movement? Is that Yes, the yes. The website has just been completed. <laughs> wow, thank God. <laughs> thank thank. Yes, yes, yes. And what is the website? Is it, is it called livingearthmovement.com or something like yes, that? Yes, yes. Okay. And then I know you have a lot of books and uh, all available on Amazon and all that stuff. And you have your institutes. And you're working with a lot of uh, important people, I noticed, on your website. These are like philosophers and scientists and things and, and professors uh, that are with you. Uh, and you want to help, uh, you know, change the world, uh, you know, help uh, save the environment and also work with China, as you said, right? The superpowers. And um, is there anything next coming up that we should be looking about? We'd love to have you back on again, by the way, if you'd like to do this again uh, and talk more about it. Well, I, I would be, be delighted if people would think about yes. getting a more realistic picture of China. But yes. But if, if you feel enmity toward China, okay, feel enmity, but then remember that loving your enemy uh-huh. is a very different matter from despising your enemy. Yes, because even uh, your child, you can give a bread to your child who you love, but it, to give it to the enemy, that's hard to give them bread. That's right. Uh, Says Jesus. But it's, it's rewarding to do it, right? It's, but it's but I, I really think that if you love your enemy, it ceases to be enmity. Ah. And, and you really look for ways of helping. And helping may, may mean changing. I'm, you, know, you understand this is not a matter of saying, think everybody is fine like they are and just leave mm-hmm. them alone. Yes. But I, I find that China is more open and more ready mm-hmm. to make needed changes than wow. the United States is. So. Mm-hmm the kind of self-righteousness of a lot of the propaganda is upsetting to me. I see. Well, like you said, love is the solution. Like, when you love others, you also love yourself. You know, it's like, um, it's bi-directional. Yes. You actually feel more joyous, you know, and uh, when you hate, you know, you're angry, you're tense, right? You're stressed, blood pressure goes up. So uh, even for personal health benefits, right, it's better to have loving energy, uh, compassion, Yes. To relieve suffering of others, empathy to put yourself in their shoes. And for the sake of your children, really to yes. cooperating with, yes. with the other great world power. 
Exactly. In, in leading exactly. the world to make the radical changes that are needed. Of course. Uh, is is something I hope all of us will do. Definitely. Plus, I love Chinese food, by the way. But I don't know. <laughs> do you like Chinese food? Or no? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's great. Uh, well, Dr. Cobb, it's been a wonderful pleasure having you on board. Uh, again, we'd love to have you some other time. And I know you have a lot of projects going on. Until next time, we send you love and energy to you and your family. Agape. Thank uh, you. Without expectation. Uh, have a wonderful night. Until next time. This is Dr. Alex Avi, Love University. Reach us at 310-226-8090 for any questions for Dr. Cobb. Love University, love at gmail.com. Visit us at loveuniversity.love. Until next time, this is Dr. Alex Avila, Love University. Put away your notebooks, your iPad, your phones. And Dr. Cobb, co-professor today, we are now discussing the class. Thank you. That was a great interview with Dr. Cobb. A fascinating man. I was a young man, I guess, spiritually young, 97 years old. And uh, he talked about so many things. Psychology, spirituality, the ecology, the environment, politics. But I think fundamentally he's saying that love is a key. Loving yourself uh, to be able to help others, loving others and loving a higher nature, whether you call it God or spirit or whatever it might be. And he's got a great uh, project helping save uh, save land, save, save uh, nature, and save the world and, and the earth in a sense, living living earth movement. So if you want to uh, reach us uh, and talk to us about today's show, if you have any show questions or show ideas, you can write to us at loveuniversitylove at gmail.com. Call us at 310-226-8090. Visit us at loveuniversity.love. You can also like us on Facebook and Instagram and follow us at Love University Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Love Letter U Podcast. Also, our sister podcast, Invincible U, which has a lot of fascinating topics similar to this, uh, Transformation. You can follow us and like us on Instagram and Facebook at Invincible U Official. Follow us there at Invincible U underscore. And for both podcasts, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. So again, saving the environment is really saving you because you are the environment. The inner takes the outer. The outer affects the inner. And through love and through sharing with other people, we can change the world. We can transform ourselves and transform the world at the same time. Until next time, this is Dr. Alex Avila. Love University. Put away your notebooks, your iPads, your phones, and we'll see you on the next class.